0: The violence began one night in Los Angeles.
1: It started in a pattern that has become all too familiar.
0: That's historian Rick Perlstein.
1: A young man was being arrested allegedly for drunk driving. A crowd gathered because people were sick of cops manhandling their brothers and sisters in this African-American neighborhood in Los Angeles. A woman came out and she was wearing a smock that kind of looked like a pregnancy dress, and the police kicked her. And a rumor spread around Los Angeles that the police had kicked a pregnant woman. And before long, block after block after block, in fact, stretching for dozens of blocks, there were fires, there was looting, and there were basically assaults on people by the police.
0: The unrest Rick's describing happened over half a century ago, in 1965, in Watts, an African-American neighborhood in South L.A. Americans could follow the unrest in real time. This was new. An L.A. TV station stuck a camera under a helicopter and flew it over Watts. And a CBS News report captured the scene on the ground. Geez, they really turned that thing over. Now
1: they're going to burn it. It's all the way up. There it goes. You know, people breaking windows and taking advantage of the melee to, you know, abscond with furniture and appliances. Market, So it was really just like an apparent scene of, of anarchy.
0: By the time the riots ended, more than 13,000 National Guard troops had been dispatched. 4,000 people had been arrested and 1,000 injured. 34 people were dead. The destruction in Watts and in other cities throughout the 1960s is getting a lot of attention these days, after protests over the killing of George Floyd erupted around the country. What I'm viewing right now, this this takes me
1: back to 1968. 1967
0: and Newark. He- Reminded me of the 1967
1: riots. Happened in 1965 in the watch riot.
0: They're looking to the 60s, its unrest, its politics, and its inequities, to make sense of our current moment. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaum. It's Friday, June 5th. Coming up on the show, a historian explains what the 1960s can and can't tell us about 2020.
1: This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, Improving customer service or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com.
0: Historian and journalist Rick Perlstein has been thinking, researching, and writing about the 1960s for over two decades.
1: I've written a book called Nixon Land about the upheavals of the 1960s.
0: And what Rick finds surprising about these riots is that they happen during a moment of progress. 1964 and 65 were landmark years for civil rights legislation.
1: In 1964, uh, Lyndon Johnson signed a historic Civil Rights Act that outlawed segregation. In 1965, after the uh, attacks on marchers in Selma, Alabama, he signed a Voting Rights Act that made it illegal to discriminate against African Americans in terms of voting. He did so with Martin Luther King by his side under the Capitol dome in a televised ceremony in which he said that the slaves came here in shackles. They came in darkness and they came in chains. And today, we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. It almost seemed like he was declaring that America's racial ordeal was over, finally, at long last. And the Watts riots broke out days later.
0: America's racial ordeal was far from over. Riots kept breaking out, all through the late 60s in more than 100 cities. Big ones, like Chicago and Cleveland, but also smaller ones, like Des Moines, Iowa.
1: So it's all over the country, and almost always they were instigated because of some sort of backlash against police abuse. Police were almost always the spur to these sorts of things. And then, of course, in 1968, the worst-year riots, the biggest instigator was— assassination of Martin Luther King.
0: Another thing fueling these riots was the economic picture for Black Americans in the 60s. Black unemployment was twice as high as white unemployment, and Black people were three and a half times more likely to be living in poverty. And this was at a time when America on the whole was becoming more prosperous
1: you know, the Great Society programs were starting to work. And sociologists talked about a revolution of rising expectations. First of all, that African-Americans were in a country that was extraordinarily prosperous and they weren't sharing in that prosperity and they were seeing it every day on TV. But also because, you know, if people are so beaten down, they see no hope, they tend to be kind of quiescent. But when people, you know, sort of feel a little bit of possibility, they tend to get even angrier at the kind of injustices they do find.
0: The result was unrest unlike anything in Americans' recent memory. And in it, one presidential candidate sensed an opportunity, Richard Nixon. Nixon had run for president before, in 1960. Back then, he'd built himself as an experienced statesman, someone who knew how the White House worked. He lost. But by 68, Nixon was ready to try again.
1: And one of the striking things that happened, I discovered in my research, was that it was quite likely that he would have run in 1968, much as he had in 1960, you know, as kind of a statesman.
0: He might have run that way. But then another politician showed him a different way to win.
1: Ronald Reagan won the governor's race in California on a law and order platform talking about how kids should get, you know, picked up by the scruff of their neck if they were protesting and kicked out of school. And Richard Nixon very much went to school on that campaign because it was a real shocking upset.
0: Nixon saw this messaging work with Reagan and replicated it. When he ran for president again in 1968, he was no longer the statesman. He was the law and order candidate. He picked a vice president, Spiro Agnew, who'd once said that looters should be shot. And Nixon tried to win over voters with an ad.
1: A very striking advertisement that basically showed images of anarchy in the streets. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. And said, if you know you want this to stop, you've got to elect me. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. There was a really striking image in that ad. It shows kind of the detritus of a riot, you know, the street looking like a bombed-out wartime Dresden. And sitting in the middle of the pile, and the camera lingers on it, is like a white mannequin, naked white mannequin. And, you know, sort of subliminally, he really seems to be kind of pointing to the rape, the defilement of white womanhood.
0: Nixon continued to paint a dystopian picture of America throughout the campaign, like in his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. If elected, he said he would restore order. The first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence, and that right must be guaranteed in this country. He was
1: aiming a lot of that at, you know, kind of white suburbanites, right, who were frightened and wanted to kind of retreat behind their white picket fences and not have to worry about, you know, being disturbed in their placid life that they had.
0: And when it came time for Election Day, these messages were put to the test. And they worked.
1: He squeaks by.
0: Now, half a century later, that law and order messaging is back. I am your president of law and order. That's After the Break. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused. Like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe. With LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't. And a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. Welcome back. On Monday, President Trump spoke from the White House Rose Garden. The protests, sparked by the killing of George Floyd, were in their seventh day. And as in Nixon's speech half a century ago, Trump painted a stark picture of America. Small business owners have seen their dreams utterly destroyed. New York's finest have been hit in the face with bricks. Brave nurses who have battled the virus, are afraid to leave their homes. He also promised to restore order. That is why I am taking immediate presidential action to stop the violence and restore security and safety in America. It wasn't the first time Trump seemed to echo Nixon. Earlier this week, the president tweeted in all caps, law and order. He also tweeted a Nixon catchphrase.
1: He's tweeted in all caps, the silent majority
0: Nixon used that phrase, the silent majority, to describe what he said were a majority of Americans who didn't raise their voice and didn't protest. Half a century later, Trump was resurrecting the term.
1: The problem is, Trump might have studied the lesson of 1968, but ignored the lesson of 1970. In
0: 1970, Nixon wasn't up for reelection himself. But as president, he campaigned hard for his fellow Republicans in the midterms. The goal was a Republican sweep. And to pull it off, Nixon turned back to the law and order message that had worked so well for him in 1968. Except this time, it didn't work because Nixon was already in office.
1: It was easy to say in 1968 that I'm going to restore normalcy because he was running against an incumbent. Now that he was the incumbent, It was much harder. —
0: America had just gone through two chaotic years under Nixon. There were student protests, the weather underground bombings, the Kent State shootings, the Manson family murders. To a lot of people, it didn't seem like Nixon had delivered on the order he promised. And it showed at the ballot box. —
1: Republicans way underperformed their expectations. The campaign was a miserable failure.
0: Rick says, politically, 2020 could look a lot more like 1970 than 1968. But in other ways, the situation right now is similar to the 60s. Black Americans' economic picture is still worse than white Americans. They are two and a half times as likely to be in poverty as whites. And in May, as businesses began to reopen, overall unemployment dropped. But Black unemployment didn't. In our conversation, Rick talked about history as the combination of two things, continuity and change. And he sees change in the evolution of protests against police abuse.
1: If we're talking about the kind of thing we're talking about now, which is just kind of like uprisings of rage against police abuses, it's rather different from the 60s in that it's not this kind of spontaneous wave of destruction. It's part of a movement, a movement against police injustice. In that sense, it's more explicitly political, right? It has a political agenda. It's about calling police to account, you know, people laying on their backs by the thousands and saying, I can't breathe.
0: But in at least one way, he says what's happening now is pretty consistent with the sweep of American history.
1: The fact of the matter is, you know, riots are not an unusual thing in American history. You know, um, America is an angry country, you know? America is an impassioned country. America is a country with a lot of guns and a lot of inequality and a lot of in-groups and a lot of out-groups and a lot of winners and a lot of losers. You know, there's a saying that, you know, civilization is never more than four or five missed meals away from collapsing, you know, maybe, you know, America's stability and equanimity is only, you know, four or five outrageous miscarriages of injustices away from losing its equanimity.
0: That's all for today, Friday, June 5th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is made by Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Our show is engineered by Griffin Tanner with help from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from So Wiley, Marcus Bagala, Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.